You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us now open Holy Scripture. We turn again this afternoon to the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7, and then to 2 Peter chapter 1, in connection with our text of today, John chapter 9. We turn first then to Joshua 7. We begin reading at verse 16. In the first part of this chapter, we read about how Achan took some of the booty from Jericho that he was forbidden to take, and that as a result, the Israelites were routed at Ai. The Lord told Joshua to have Israel stand before the Lord, and he would help him find the man who had done this. We pick up our reading at verse 16. And this is the word of God fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Turn now to Second Peter 1. Read the verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises 
so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is near-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us again open Holy Scripture to John chapter 9, our text today. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home. Seeing, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, 
We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in, birth, in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So far the reading of Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it could be said that blindness is one of the worst disabilities to live with. Could you imagine what life would be like if you were struck with blindness You would no longer be able to see what you're doing, what's happening around you. You wouldn't be able to see and enjoy beautiful things anymore. Your life would change completely. You would be lost. In many ways, you would be alone. Frankly, I don't think that many of us can really imagine what it would be like if we have not experienced it. Praise the Lord for eyesight. But you know, there's something worse than being blind. 
And that's when you're unaware of your blindness. When you think you can see, but you're actually blind. When you think you're walking in the light, but in fact you are groping around in the dark, stumbling. When you think that you have spiritual understanding and light and insight and illumination, but in reality you are spiritually lost and confused. After our Lord Jesus healed the man who had been born blind, people had lots of questions. These people were Jews. They later brought the man to the Pharisees. In verse 18, they are called the Jews. We read in verse 8, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some believed that he was. Others thought that he just looked like him. The man himself, we're told in verse 9, insisted, I am the man. One thing led to another. Soon the questions of curiosity became an inquest and eventually an all-out cross-examination by the Pharisees. Notice, brothers and sisters, the progressive stages of the inquest. First, the Jews questioned one another about the man. Verses 8 and following. Then in the verses 10 and following, they questioned the man himself. In verses 13 and following, they questioned the man in the presence of the Pharisees. Next thing you know, the investigation turns into a full-blown cross-examination of the man born blind by the Pharisees themselves. Verses 17 and following. Before long, they reach a preliminary judgment and offer the man a chance to repent. Verse 24 and following. And when he refuses to comply with their ridiculous request, they condemn him, they sentence him, and throw him out of the synagogue. Verse 34. Nowhere in the text do we see them rejoicing with this man who had been blind since birth. Merciless judges. The Pharisees then placed themselves in the judgment seat. They made themselves judge over this man. But notice the style of their proceedings, which shows that they were certainly not qualified to judge. In the first place, they were divided. They were a divided jury, a hung jury. They couldn't get it together. Look at what we read in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. This was often the case with the Jews and the Pharisees when they were confronted with Jesus and His miracles. We read something similar in John 7 where John reports what happened at the Feast of Booths. We're told in verse 40 and following that some people thought that he was a prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from that place called Galilee? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus, John writes. Not only were they divided, those who didn't believe in Jesus and continued their interrogation were also filled with suspicion. 
We're told in verse 18 that they did not believe that this man had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Suspicion can be extremely dangerous for those who presume to judge. For when there is suspicion, there's a real temptation to reach conclusions and judgments without the facts, to ignore the evidence, to judge rashly and unheard. Brothers and sisters, we need to be so wary of suspicion. Also the suspicion that lies in our own hearts. Destructive in the church of Christ. It is against the rule of love and makes impartial justice among God's people pretty well impossible. Notice also the nature of the questions that the Pharisees asked. They didn't ask their questions with the goal of reaching an impartial answer. They designed their questions to confirm their preconceived suspicions. They were sly and incriminating towards the healed man and his parents, and especially toward the Lord Jesus. Notice that even when they questioned the healed man's parents, their goal was to manipulate them, to embarrass and undermine them as deceptive if they didn't offer the answer the Pharisees wanted. Verse 19. Clearly from what follows, the parents knew that the Pharisees were being manipulative. The Pharisees were experts at fear-mongering. John reports to us earlier, for example, how in John 7, no one would say anything publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Now the Pharisees even went so far as placing a curse on the temple guards for being sympathetic toward Jesus. And how they scorned Nicodemus for pleading that Jesus be dealt with justly. What then are we to make of the response of the parents? We're told in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, in their answer, they showed... His parents showed that they were ruled by fear of the Pharisees. They were faced with clear evidence and they knew what the truth was, but they were afraid of the opposition of the Pharisees. They, of course, did this under the pretense of not wishing to infringe on their son's maturity. It's true, the Pharisees were fear-mongers. But the parents were cowardly. Compare their response to the Pharisees with the response of their son. Their son was bold. He knew that the Pharisees had the power to throw him out of the synagogue, but that didn't stop him from boldly speaking the truth about Jesus. He even put the Pharisees on the spot at verse 27 he answered I have told you already and you did not listen why do you want to hear it again do you want to become his disciples too and even after they chastised and insulted him verse 30 the man answered now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes 
This man couldn't care less that these people were Pharisees, experts in the law. Clearly he was willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. What about us then? What are we like at work, university or college? How do we handle those opportunities that are presented to us to speak the truth about Christ and the questions that are put to us when we're in a conversation with our neighbor? Are we cowardly like this man's parents or are we bold when it comes to confessing the truth about Jesus and giving an account of the hope that is within us? So easy for us to make excuses, isn't it? They wouldn't understand. We rationalize. They wouldn't get it. If I say something, it will just be like throwing pearls to pigs, we tell ourselves. So why bother? I'll just be quiet for now. Remember what Jesus says. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Jesus puts it even more strongly in his revelation to John, Revelation 21. There he groups the cowardly together with the unbelieving. The vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars. Listen to what he says of the cowardly, like he says of all these others. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Brothers and sisters, when we're tempted... Let us not be cowardly. God, help us to set apart Christ as Lord and to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. If you do this, brothers and sisters, you are blessed indeed. Just as this man who was healed. Yes, you may be mocked, you may be scorned, you may be ridiculed, you may even be ostracized. But as Jesus promises in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Getting back to the Pharisees, clearly they exhibited all the qualities of poor judges. They were suspicious. They were legalistic. They were manipulative. They were fear mongers, prejudiced, and dismissive. They didn't only place themselves as judges over the healed man and his parents, though. They also placed themselves as judges over Jesus himself. They judged him for healing on the Sabbath, on the basis of a law and tradition that they themselves had invented. 
They were being wiser than God. They were being more strict than God Himself, the lawgiver. They were so good at nitpicking that even His action of spitting on the ground and making mud constituted a breach of their dearly held Sabbath legalisms. The word that is used in verse 6 to describe Jesus' action is the same word that's used for kneading dough. And that was yet another thou shalt not that they had added to their long list of Sabbath laws. They even judged Jesus to be a sinner, verses 16 and 24, like tax collectors and prostitutes. But who really was qualified to judge? It certainly wasn't them, the Pharisees. It was Jesus Christ. Before healing the man who had been born blind, Jesus said to His disciples, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 5. Now in order to judge, you need both sight and light. Jesus had both. But the Pharisees demonstrated that they possessed neither. They couldn't see. And they were in the darkness. Remember what Jesus said after the miracle and after this man had been condemned, sentenced and thrown out of the synagogue. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Indeed, Jesus was the rightful judge. For judgment I have come into the world, Jesus said. The Jews were not in a position to judge Jesus as they presumed. Rather, Jesus was their judge. May we never forget this, brothers and sisters. We might be tempted, even inclined, to place ourselves as judges over others when we're really not in that position. We might even be tempted to place ourselves as judges over God's law, something that James warns about in his letter, chapter 4, so that we make our rules and our human traditions the laws by which others must live. But then we should remember what God has told us and what we confess. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge over all. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Before Him, Jesus, the Savior. Before Him, the Lord of all, everyone either stands or falls. We must heed His judgment before rendering our own. This also has implications for how we live in this world. For often we turn things topsy-turvy or let the world do that for us. The world places itself in a place of judgment over the church, on the news, in the papers in our workplaces, in our schools. People in in the world place themselves as judges over us and even over Jesus Christ. Your peers at the secular school, 
your co-workers, your neighbors, take it upon themselves to judge you for your faith, perhaps. They call you naive. They call you fanatic. They call you simplistic. They call you whatever else. That's backwards. It's not for them to judge. Jesus Christ is judge. He judges the world and not the other way around. And so, brothers and sisters, we need not fear the judgment of the world, not even the sentence of the world. But we need to place ourselves, first of all, not others, under the judgment of Christ. As Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, fear God. Lay your life and your actions before Him, the judge of all men, women, and children. As wicked judges then, the Pharisees ended up being their own executioners. As they became progressively more judgmental and condemning of the healed man and Jesus, judging them to be sinners, they themselves became more and more subject to condemnation and judgment. As the healed man grew in his faith, they hardened in their unbelief. As Jesus declared to them at the end of our text in verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. But look at what happened. What happened in verse 24? The second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is is a sinner. Now, the expression there in verse 24, give glory to God, had a very particular meaning for the Jews. It was another way of telling someone to repent. In other words, it was really something that would be said to someone who was judged for doing evil. Remember what we read in Joshua 7. There Joshua says to Achan, who has been discovered as the guilty one, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give Him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Joshua said this to Achan in order to bring him to a confession of his sin. In order to bring him to repentance. But did you notice how different Joshua's tone was from that of the Jews? Joshua said to Achan, My son. Joshua spoke with compassion over this man who had been found guilty. He spoke with love to this man who had committed this awful sin and who had brought trouble on the whole people of Israel. But what do we detect among the Pharisees? 
We certainly don't detect any love or compassion in their questions and appeals. In itself, it's true that we give glory to God when we confess our sins, brothers and sisters. That's why confession of sin is such an important aspect of our weekly worship and such an integral part of our daily worship. Though we feel shame for our sins, and we ought to, let us remember that we bring God glory when we repent, when we confess our sins to God. God is praised when we do that. God is worshipped on Sunday when we together as a congregation humble ourselves and ask for His mercy and grace. God is worshipped and glorified when we fall down on our knees at our bedsides during the week and confess our sins to Him. He delights in us when we humble ourselves before Him. As David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The remarkable thing is that while the Pharisees demand that the healed man give glory to God by repenting and confessing his perceived sin, they themselves refuse to give glory to God by believing. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but He will turn it to thick darkness and change it to deep gloom. Jeremiah there was urging God's people to faith. Those who refuse to give glory to God by believing in Him, like the Pharisees did, will be brought into darkness. They will hope for light, but God will turn it into thick darkness and deep gloom. As it turned out, the healed man was giving glory to God while they were blaspheming Him. The healed man fell down in worship, we read, while they refused to bend the knee to the living God on account of their pride, which Jeremiah had warned against. So while they think they are in the light and can see clearly, they're blind. They're in thick darkness. The healed man sees the evidence that Jesus is the Christ and he believes. All exactly the same evidence is placed before their eyes, but they don't see it. They're blind as bats. Even in the full light of day, even in the face of the glory of God, which is right before their eyes. Isn't it remarkable, brothers and sisters, that the Pharisees, 
who had eyes to read the scriptures didn't understand them. But that the healed man, though unable to read since birth, understood the scriptures better than they did and even quoted from the scriptures with insight. constant refrain of the Pharisees was, we know. Watch it when you hear that expression. I know. We know. Verse 24. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 28 and 29, We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. How proud they were about the knowledge that they thought they possessed. Their pride comes to its most abominable expression in verse 34 when they say to the healed man, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? After which they threw him out. In other words, we know. Who are you, you sinner, to tell us how it is? Oh, brothers and sisters, danger of spiritual pride. The danger of thinking that we know. The danger of thinking that we alone are in a position to teach and ourselves can never be taught. But the Pharisees were blind guides as Jesus had called them straining out gnats for others while swallowing camels whole themselves. In their pride, they thought they didn't need a thing. And that's why they said to Jesus in verse 40, What? Are we blind too? And they were, in fact, wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, and blind. Revelation 3. Remember what we read from Second Peter 1. In verses 5 and following, Peter lists the fruit of the Spirit, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, kindness. It's remarkable, isn't it, that the Pharisees who judged the healed man and Jesus didn't possess these qualities. They were a self-fulfilling prophecy of what Peter says in verse 9. But if anyone, if anyone does not have these qualities, these fruits of the Spirit, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So, so, who was blind? 
Did the Pharisees show any of these fruits with the inquest and the cross-examination and their treatment of this healed man? Who was blind? The blind man saw and believed. But those who thought, they saw so well, became blind. The Pharisees tossed the blind man out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. Maybe he never saw the inside of a synagogue again. But one thing he did see. He beheld God's glory in the person of Jesus. He was tossed from the synagogue, but he was welcomed into the temple by the temple. Jesus, the dwelling place of God. And he worshipped Jesus. He was tossed out of the synagogue by the Pharisees, but he was welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, into the mansions of the Father. It's no accident that immediately after this chapter comes John 10, where Jesus is described as the Good Shepherd. Oh yes, the Jews could throw him out of the synagogue, but they could not snatch this man from Jesus' hand. The Pharisees could tell him to get lost, but Jesus, the good shepherd, as we read in verse 35, Jesus, the good shepherd, found him. And when this man heard Jesus' voice, He recognized it. He listened. He followed Jesus. He believed. As Jesus says in the next chapter, also about this man, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. filled with the knowledge as they were, as they thought they were, the Pharisees were blind, but didn't know it. And that is worse, far worse, than being physically blind. Jesus doesn't seek people who are puffed up with knowledge but who are blinded by their own pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Jesus seeks worshipers. He seeks those who worship Him in spirit and truth. He makes the blind see. Those who are lost, He finds. Praise God that we may see 
by faith, even if we're told to get lost, even if we're tossed out by the world, no one can snatch us from His hand. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.